I did a lot of reports on Bitcoin versus the global payments industry. And I just really wanted to make the point clear with all these people who have the expectation that within a few years, a large percentage of the global population is going to switch over to using Bitcoin for payments. So I looked into the global stats in there and I obviously don't recall them off the top of my head, but I had some things where basically if everyone was fully informed today on what their options are for different cross-border payments, then the average fee that people pay for cross-border payments would drop from, and this is just with traditional payments means, it would drop from about 6.2 to 3.2% on average. Sam, welcome to the show. Um, it is really Thanks awesome for having to me. have you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, in fact, you haven't been on the show before, have you? No. Have we done a show together? Oh, damn. No. Well, first time. All right. Even better. It's even more special than I thought. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, welcome to the show, man. Uh, give a, a brief introduction. I mean, I'm sure a good chunk of the audience know who you are, but just in case, uh, give an introduction uh, for yourself. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not that famous. I'm not a, a big author, but I'm, a, I guess, like a Bitcoin content creator in general. That's always what I've done, kind of how I got into Bitcoin. I work at River as a research analyst where I've produced a whole bunch of research around just various Bitcoin-related topics where there's kind of an overlap between like what is our business interested in, what are our clients interested in, and what's kind of relevant right now, uh, and also pretty hard to find data on. So. I guess yeah. we're talking about one of those uh, reports a bit today on the Lightning Network. Yes. But uh, yes. yeah, very, very passionate about Bitcoin in general and especially education. And uh, really appreciate what you do as well to just contribute yeah. to the space in your own way. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Appreciate that. Um, so, what's your role around Lightning? Like, what are your touch points around Lightning? both as far as uh, river goes and then also just kind of like personally, what's, what's your, how, how does lightning fit into your, your life, so to speak? Yeah. Well, I'm like one of the fortunate people who lives in a first world country, I guess. So lightning is in a lot of cases, it's a luxury. Uh, it's not a, not as much of a necessity. I use it whenever I'm able to, whenever I can ever pay with lightning anywhere, I'll do it immediately. Mm -hmm. And I should like, like, I guess you guys say, like, knock on wood, I've never actually had a lightning payment fail to date. No and kidding. I've done, I've done plenty. <laughs> like, uh, so, so like, I'll probably, I'll, it'll mess up at some point, but I'm one of those rare individuals Today. on that side Today. of the curve <laughs> who has never had that issue, um, <laughs> which has nothing to do with skill or knowledge or anything like that. I, yeah. Like, I've just never had it happen. So, uh, and I've used a variety of lightning wallets, I should add there. So as a user, a big fan of it, um, I do, of course, like many other people see the challenges in getting it adopted and getting it in the hands of people who don't understand how all of the technical things work. Um, I'm not a technical person by background. So if people start asking me super technical questions, I'm not going to know the answer in a lot of cases either. And at River, my like sort of the way I interface with it is I'm not on the Lightning team itself and busy working on that infrastructure or anything like that. Um, my role is a, like in content and like, I guess content is broader, like research is a part of that. And I try to work with the data that we have ourselves because River runs some of the largest nodes on the Lightning Network. 
Um, and it doesn't make sense for our developers to be the ones who make content around that, uh, because you also, you know, there's, there's a lot that comes to that. They need to be working on the actual infrastructure. Yeah. So, uh, I make use of our data for starters because we're just like, you know, sharing what we have available as well, as far as we can. And then like aggregating data from around the industry to be able to come up with interesting insights that, uh, you can't really read from an outside perspective. If you're just looking at the Lightning Network, everyone's familiar with those sort of standard um, metrics around like the capacity, the number of nodes, the number of channels. But beyond that, people just don't really know what's going on uh, behind the scenes. And that's what we tried to provide a whole bunch of insights into. Yeah, that's one interesting thing about Lightning is that you don't have, you can't see payments. You know, like yeah. if you're if you're not in the route and even if you're in the route, like there's granted, you can now currently you can like connect hashes and potentially if you can see enough of the network, you can put, you know, some split payments and stuff together. But largely it's it's kind of a black box in a lot of ways, yeah. um, which is so, like a funny part about that as well as I was at uh, Bitcoin Amsterdam and a developer said to me, basically, if I do my job well, then your methodologies for your report, they won't work. Like yeah. this, this will be one of the last reports you make on the Lightning Network. But it's yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. After the, a year the, or two, though, with PTLCs and a bunch of things yeah. that like are expected to come, it will really kind of mess things up. Like you'll have a hard yeah. time. I mean, I don't mind. I'd rather have the privacy improved than best be able reason, to say right? like, "Hey guys, I've got an amazing report again here." Like yeah. <laughs> you just give a report says my report has been obsoleted. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Um, that's cool. That's that's kind of neat to hear, honestly. Um, as as sad as it will be to lose that information, it's cool to see the the privacy start to. I mean, we we already see like kind of hints of it. Like, and you talk about it that you kind of had to reach out to people in the industry to get the data because you can't see it. So, like, what kind of a task is that? How many people did you reach out to? How many companies? And you know, what what's kind of the process of putting that together? Out of curiosity. Yeah, uh, I think. Probably about 40-ish people, like nodes, companies, et cetera. And a lot of them obviously go like, yeah, but you work at River. You guys run some of the biggest nodes. Aren't you going to abuse this data to get some kind of unfair advantage? Um, like, you know, people are legit concerned about it, even though the space is still yeah, like, it it's relatively small. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like it's all about growing the space in general. And that's really how mm -hmm. we've tried to position the report as well. It's for everyone. But still, some people are concerned, like, yeah, but, you know, you guys have a bit of a team. Aren't you going to abuse this in some kind of way? And I was very clear about it, like, like, and, and very honestly, like nobody besides me ever got to look at the data, at, at any of the raw data, uh, and nobody has access to it either. So I've just really kept that not out of like, I don't want to share guys, but just out of respect for everyone who shared it, that was the agreement. And mm -hmm. uh, I've kept to that. And that is one of the reasons why some people wanted to share their data, even though they otherwise might not. And then one of the things that helped to convince people who ended up sharing was that uh, a lot of the data points were aggregated. So it's not like we are in the report comparing, like, this is how Bitfinex is doing with its nodes compared to, uh, like, to the async node, for example, compared to another node compared to us. Because yeah, then yeah. people just start sort of thinking about those companies uh, as... Uh, competitors in a way, and they start benchmarking all of this stuff. And that's not really the goal. It's not to say this is the very best node out there. Um, and by aggregating the information, a lot more companies were interested. There were also plenty that 
you know, like didn't even bother to respond. Obviously, that always happens <laughs> no matter where yeah. you reach out or what you try to do. But it's just a lot of, you know, just a standard project management of chasing up on people. And one of the hardest parts was getting good data on like a, a very specific time frame because I tried to focus on August 2023. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from that month, I needed the data from as many uh, participants as possible. And then you'll get some people who are not responding or uh, they only send like part of the data and whatnot. And then, uh, yeah, it takes a lot of following up to figure things out and then making sure that all of the data they provide you is also in the same format, everything works together. So yeah. it's all a bunch of that fun stuff that happens behind the scenes where ultimately the, the result that people get is just like one little graph that looks good. And behind that graph grab is like, like a line or two. Like, yeah. And behind the like graph, you know, there will be like a hundred hours. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> That's great. Oh man. Well, we uh, very much appreciate that you do the hard work so that I can read a simple report and make sense out of things. Um, but that's a that's a really good point too. Is that, and I appreciate that approach. Is that you know this isn't about companies and comparing companies. Like it's a report about the Lightning Network. Is what's happening with the Lightning Network, not some node or some business around it. Um, and it's it's just another interesting like kind of element to the whole thing is that you have to get, you don't know what's going on in somebody else's node and essentially looking inside somebody else's node is the only way that you can ha- kind of have an image of this thing because of the, the nature of the onion routing of it all. Yeah. Um, like even, even when you look at all the, the privacy attacks, you know, everybody's it, it, almost inevitably. And I, it's so funny. Like people's like, Oh, there's a really terrible one and I'll read another thing. And you know, get into it's like oh god oh god this is this is the one that's going to be a pain and it's going to take a year to fix or whatever and then i just found out that it's like oh if you have a channel with like 800 different people or you have like assuming you have twenty thousand nodes all spread out to the network you can x and i'm like okay so basically if you if it's going through your node you can see stuff that's always been the case um but uh, it's, it's just kind of an interesting to see a, a direct example of like, yeah, if you don't, if you don't, they don't tell you, you don't know, um, which is good, which is good. It's cool to see a privacy layer start to kind of prove itself in a sense yeah. that this is the reality. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, what was the, uh, what was the biggest thing that was surprising to you? that um, you weren't expecting to find i wasn't expecting as much growth mm-hmm. and i really had to like run through the numbers probably a dozen times just to make sure like is this actually correct because it seems like you know like on the one hand it seems like a lot of growth at the same time it is still a relatively small network in the grand scheme of payment networks mm-hmm. um but the growth just looked better than what you like I guess like that's where a lot of the criticism on Lightning comes from. Everyone looks at those standard metrics of the number of channels, of the capacity, et cetera, and those have been relatively flat. So mm-hmm. when you see that flatten out, you just automatically, you can't help it. It's just human psychology. You think to yourself, well, that must mean that the activity has been relatively flat too, yeah. but it hasn't been the case. We're just doing far more with the same capacity, with the same number of channels. And that's a trend I would probably expect to continue. Uh, you know, we're not going to see... I would expect another 1200% growth in the same time frame too soon. It could happen. I mean, it all depends what happens to the Bitcoin price as well, ultimately. 
But um, yeah, it's just been pretty staggering uh, in a two-year time frame. So that was a big one for me. And then seeing how the, at least from our nodes perspective and a few of the others that shared as well, uh, but whose data isn't in the report, just seeing payment success rate has gone up quite significantly. Um, that's pretty exciting to see as well, because that's really just a thing that, you know, it needs to work as many nines after the comma as possible, yeah. uh, <laughs> like as close to hundred percent as possible, essentially for mm -hmm. it to really be reliable and you know, if it would still be failing like 3% at a time, that is just too much for yeah. mainstream adoption in a way. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a really exciting trend to see. And I wasn't expecting as much of a jump there either, that it got that much more reliable, at least from uh, some of the perspectives that I could tell from the data that was shared. Do you remember so, the uh, stats specifically on that? I mean, obviously the title of it is that it grew 1212% yeah. um, in that span of time. Uh, but, uh, on reliability, I have the report here next to me as well, in okay, case I yeah. need to look anything up, figured that would be handy. But I like sort of recall off the top of my head, I think uh, I was only allowed to share our own data on the reliability part okay. because, uh, yeah, it gets, gets a little more sensitive once you start lumping in others. But basically in August 2022, so that was a year before I did the report, Payments were failing through our uh, nodes, et cetera, roughly two and a half percent of the time. Okay. So that's still pretty often. And then August yeah. 2023, it was down to like 0.2% of the time wow. or so. So wow. that's, you know, that's only our perspective. Obviously, people who have small nodes who are not as well connected, mm -hmm. their percentage might be higher. But if the trend is looking up for us, then the chances are pretty high that they've improved across the board, I think. And that was also reflected in the data I could at least look at from other companies. But there were a few data points like that where they're like, yeah, can, can you not publish anything about this? It's really just mm -hmm. for your context to be able to write in the report, but we don't want to put our exact numbers in there. Um, well, I'm so yeah, curious. That's, that's a pretty uh, awesome improvement there. Yeah, that's a, huge, that's a huge difference in that span of time, especially considering, you know, quote unquote, liquidity is largely flat on the apparent on the outside like i mean i think yeah. it did change a little bit but you know respective to the number of payments obviously it's a huge difference um which suggests that it's the management of that liquidity and or something more specific in like routing and like do, do you do you know do you have any like concrete evidence on like what changes might have resulted in that or is it just kind of you think better management across the board like we just understand yeah. the tools better i would think like part part is going to be the understanding of the tools i would imagine mm -hmm. that a lot of the people who have been using lightning over the past years have you know the people who kind of adopt it and then just keep using it so after a while they learn what works and what doesn't that plays a pretty big role in there That's i think point. yeah um and obviously like w w wallets would from their perspective also be able to see like what's our retention rate here and how often you know are we are we getting you know, even things like support tickets or issues being raised of payments failing, like they'll have pretty good insights on this from their own perspective too. Um, but I think like it's, it's part is learning more about the tools. It's part the tools just getting better. It's part like even super simple adoption things of like, oh, I shouldn't send a payment to someone who is like, if they're non-custodial, obviously if they're offline, like people will do that wrong once. If they go to a store somewhere, the other person, if they also had a non-custodial wallet. They try to send a payment and the person's phone is offline or at, at home or whatever random thing mm -hmm. you can imagine. 
people learn that stuff too. Like, okay, I shouldn't do that because it doesn't work. So, you know, it can be in the little point, things yeah. there that add up at the edges and that can make a little bit of a difference too. Um, and obviously just so software updates in general to all of the infrastructure over the past years will have made a meaningful impact as well. Um, we used to still have, like, you know, in the logs, you can see specific reasons why a transaction failed. It's, it's not as detailed as you would like, but it will, for example, tell you that it wasn't able to find a route or that there's some kind of error that the uh, instructions that your node receives basically to pass the payment on that there was some kind of issue in there. And that used okay. to still happen in the earlier years where there were a whole bunch of transactions that wouldn't go through because, you know, maybe people manually coded up some implementation or whatever, or had their own rules around things and that wasn't actually compatible with Lightning. Or uh, there were bugs in software. So those yeah, used to happen, those payments, and they yeah. completely disappeared. It's really just about can't find a route to this other node because they're probably offline. Or we're timing out when trying to find a route, which is very often due to liquidity issues, as you yeah. guessed. Yeah. Fascinating. Now, I'm curious, did you, and without obviously saying anything about any particular company, did you find huge variations in like, was it obvious that this node was specifically doing vastly more with the exact same amount of liquidity oh, yeah. or was having vastly different payment failures, Yeah, even though like that's something that they were doing clearly, some policy or the way they treat it was giving them a, a, a much better operation of the network when you were Yeah, I think on, on the failure side of things, a bit harder to tell because I'll, like, I, I don't know what kind of yeah. you know, internal measures they have either for their... Like, are they automatically closing and opening channels? Like, there's no way for me to tell that unless, you know, you do an interview with the company and really figure out, like, what is it exactly that you're doing? But then you get into the realm of, hey, but you work at River, where are you trying to reverse engineer our infrastructure? Uh, that, that gets a bit uh, sensitive, I guess. Yeah. But uh, on the efficiency side of things, like, absolutely a massive difference. Um, and this is basically one of the methods I used to get estimations of how much volume is going through the network, because you can kind of see like what's the the, the capacity that's on a node, like how much of that is being turned over on a monthly basis, for example, or even a daily basis or whatever it is that you're looking for. And with some nodes that is about 15% per month. So let's say you have one Bitcoin on your Lightning node, then you might be routing about 0.15 Bitcoin uh, in a month, I believe it was a month, if I recall correctly, um, might have been a year, but I'll like I'll have to check up on that. But I believe it was a month, and then there's other ones that do about two hundred percent of their capacity in the same time frame. So they're basically performing like twelve, or was it like a little bit? That might be a little bit more, like thirteen, fourteen times better or so than wow. some of the inefficient ones. So that basically means there's a bunch of nodes wow. out there that have yeah. tons of capacity. But they're not really managing it. They're mm -hmm. like they've got just capacity sitting in unused channels. It's there's never really any Bitcoin flowing through it, and they're just not really bothering with it too much. And then you have some of the like as you can imagine, a lot of the the bigger companies in the space that are very active, like they just manage this stuff so much better, and they have huge capital efficiency. Um, and with River, I think we did share our own numbers on this as well. Like it's basically about 200% is what we're doing kind of there in the, in the upper range of efficiency, um, just from 
paying attention to where the Bitcoin's at. And we very often do some kind of like, we'll call it summer cleaning or spring cleaning, or basically happens at every season. But uh, we just close out all the channels that are not meeting the expectations and then just mm -hmm. reopen new ones where it makes sense. And the first time we did that, people freaked out because the capacity on the network dropped quite significantly. And then we started <laughs> communicating about it like, sorry, guys, we should be clear here. We are yeah. just, you know, there are no issues with the river. We're just closing out channels to help uh, increase our capital efficiency and ultimately is for our own security as well. Because all the yeah. Bitcoin you have on the Lightning Network, it's like it's connected to a hot wallet. You are taking a risk there. And as a company, even though there are our own funds, they're not client funds. So we never risk that. But there are our own funds and we are still interested in protecting those, obviously. Yeah, that's a good point is that, you know, you have, you essentially has, have node and key management risk for anything that you have exposed. So it's not merely a matter of, you know, capital efficiency. I mean, obviously you want to be making fees on every yep. sat that you have locked up into this thing. But at the exact same time, if you're not making fees, you certainly don't want it to be locked up in it. <laughs> you know, if you're, if you only have 0.15 Bitcoin moving through one Bitcoin channel, you need to figure out how to either get that other 0.85 active or get it into cold storage again because um, yep. it's not working for you. That's interesting. Um, it's not totally surprising that there would be like a big gap like that, but it's still interesting that it is that much. Yep. That is that is a little crazy. And um, I think the, yeah, I thought it was a surprising insight as well. And I think that the key insight for sort of individual hobbyists, because they will potentially more often be at the lower range as well, if they're not as well connected, because um, you're not getting volume from those big nodes. Mm -hmm. But um, a lot of people have historically had this perspective from Lightning of, oh, I could just park my Bitcoin in there and then it's automatically going to make me money with very little downside risk. Um, but yeah, those can kind of be the expectations that if you literally just put it in there, that, you know, over the course of a month, you might make a small percentage of all the Bitcoin that you are putting on there. And you are obviously paying fees for opening and closing channels. So uh, unless you are just actively involved in it and making smart decisions, then it's probably not going to pay off for now. It's, you know, it can be fun to do. It's a great learning experience. But if you want to make actual money, then it's going to take a little bit more than uh, just passively having it sitting there. Yeah, yeah. So uh, speaking of doing more than passively having it sit there, um, what, like, is are most of the adjustments, let's take River, for example, since you are, you're, you're there. Um, uh, what adjustments are being made in that sense is it basically just manual like you just see what channels are active and leave those and close and rework the channels that aren't or is there something more automatic like is there a a, a management software that's mm -hmm. doing part of the job like is is it still basically just hands-on let me look at what i see on my screen and then make adjustments according I think it, it's probably for most people, it will start out manually just to mm -hmm. understand like, what is it that I'm doing? Yeah. Um, and, and when I say for most people, I mean like people who are actually interested in the tech for mm -hmm. any, you know, individual that has no idea about, you know, how lightning works in general, but the technical side of things, they will, I would imagine in the future, always use some kind of automated solution that does everything like this for them in the backend. Mm -hmm. um, with that said, you know, they would much more likely just 
you know, if they're just an individual that's trying to transact on Lightning, they'll just have one channel. They will use something like splicing to be able to resize that channel. And like, they're never going to open and close channels. They will just be connected to call it like a few hubs that are going to be around. Um, so, you know, it doesn't even apply to those people necessarily, but for, you know, big node operators at the moment, I'm guessing like for most, it just starts out manually, just understanding like, what are the parameters that we want to use to make decisions on? Like, what's the expectation that we have of ex of activity in a channel? Um, are there certain peers that are never sending anything our way? It's all just one-sided and that's just not like what we're looking for to keep our liquidity balance out. Mm -hmm. So you just gather rules gradually over time when you start to understand how things flow. And then based on those rules, eventually pretty much every company either creates their own software to make these decisions on an automated basis, or they use some kind of existing software because those solutions obviously have started uh, emerging. And in the report, there's also a, uh, like a big industry map and there is, you know, like a variety of node management software listed in there. Some of those offer these types of uh, solutions. Yeah, the rise of LSPs just in general has been crazy. And that and that could be attributable to a lot of what's gone in just the last two years. Yep. Is like, you know, it went from like Breeze was kind of setting it up and like a lot of people were talking about it to basically every non-custodial wallet that I use is is an LSP model. Like all of them on mobile, yep. essentially. Um, and the only exception to that is the one connected to my BTC pay server, you know, which isn't that that's not the wallet. It's just a front end. <laughs> um, and so on that note, uh, you mentioned splicing specifically because one of the big things in the last, I guess, not even that many months, really, maybe maybe four or five months. I can't remember exactly when this happened. feels like four or five years, but yeah, yeah I hear it you. does. Um, uh, was that Phoenix, uh, which has been my main wallet on mobile for a long time, um, yep. uh, is uh, they switched over to splicing. I went from like 22 channels because I used it heavily uh, to one channel. And it's been, it's, it's, fascinating one just to see like the resource cost like the wallet performs better you know yep. obviously it has a whole lot less of a intensive process in finding routes and trying to do things when it doesn't have to look at doesn't have to start from 22 channels and then start branching out from there um but uh are you guys using splicing when did you guys start using it if you are and is that again something that's largely are there automated tools for this or is this still kind of the very beginning where much of that needs to be done manually yeah it's the it's the latter of like it's it's still relatively new phoenix the phoenix theme i think was the first to implement it okay uh, and i haven't actually checked in a while if there have been any other wallets that have done it as well uh and it's kind of one of those like a trend i've noticed with lightning wallets that a lot of people have followed is a lot of Bitcoiners will just ask around, like, what Lightning wallet are you using? And then there tends to be a few that are the most popular and mm -hmm. kind of everyone uses that. And then over time, like some kind of issue emerges with that, like either they shut down or uh, they're not actually using Lightning, it seems, behind the scenes. And then people will just switch over to the next one. So with Phoenix as well, I've been using that for quite a while now and you're perfectly happy with it. And then it's not like, let me go investigate which other wallets are using splicing at the yeah, moment, yeah, like yeah. if they've adopted it, so yeah. they can start using that. So it's kind of the 
people tend to stick with what they uh, what they've been using for a while, I guess. So I'm not actually aware if others have implemented it yet. Um, I know one of our people's looking at it. I don't know where the stage of that is, to be honest. Like if they, if we're already like coding something up for it to be able to use it. Um, yeah, I've, I don't have any insight there. I should have probably checked that before this episode, but I'm currently not aware. A couple too many things on my mind. Yeah, I should have sent you the question ahead of time. I should have let you know what we were going to talk about, right? Yeah, also possible. <laughs> um, I'm curious, did you... Uh, it seems to me that, you know, L&D has still been the most popular client to use, the most popular backend. Uh, but did you find anything interesting or unexpected there? And is also River using L&D? And uh, on top of that backend client, what um, viewer, like what interface or whatever are you using? Or is it just like command line? Do you know? I'm pretty sure we're using... L&D. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure we are. Um, I do know that in general, you know, we're looking at all of the implementations on a consistent basis to see like what they're, uh, what they're updating, what they're doing. As far as interface, I'm trying to think because that's the part where I haven't been as involved, obviously. I just take the data gotcha. that they spit out and uh, put into our uh, dashboards, mm-hmm. um, into our database. So I don't think I actually know. It would not surprise me given that our Lightning team, they're all just hardcore into the code that they just do a ton of stuff through command line. Yeah, um, We do have for River Lightning clients a dashboard from which they can just manage their own things. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, but I think uh, we, we have a couple of features in there as well that our developers might use if they're trying to manage their own nodes. But honestly, like it wouldn't surprise me with these guys if they're just doing stuff uh, the way they feel best all typed commands all typed yeah. commands <laughs> um how have you seen user change like on river specifically like, like what what kind of let, let's say the last year i think there was something about this in the report it's been like two months since i read it um but uh uh like like how have you seen the river user base change how often and how they use both lightning and then the service because of lightning well i think the service because of lightning it's historically like we were one of the first exchanges to adopt it back in 2019 like the integrates mm-hmm. deposits and withdrawals and people tend to like i think in general just seeing like oh which let's say with phoenix like they're the first ones to have splicing it you know, this always attracts people to see like, okay, they're forward thinking, they're trying to push Bitcoin forward and people are naturally interested in that. Of course, over time, a lot more different exchanges have also adopted Lightning and done that. So I'd say at this point, it's less of a USB than it was in the past. It's much more kind of an anti-USB if you don't have it at this point. Uh, If you still don't have Lightning and people look at your solution, it's like, okay, you don't have it, I guess I'll use like, you know, practically anything else that does have it, if they're interested in lightning. So it's a bit hard to measure because we'll like, we don't hear a lot from people that they're like, you know, some people are enthusiastic about lightning, obviously, and they'll tell us, but you don't really hear from people who go like, I went with you guys because these other guys didn't have lightning. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, yeah, that's not really the reason people tend to bring up. Um, but I'm sure it happens to a certain degree. Um, as for how people interact with it, because we operate in the US, 
And again, like, you know, first world country. Um, though I guess like nowadays people talk about the, the ascending world and the descending world. So, you know, first world, uh, first world on, on its way down, <laughs> third yeah. world on its way up. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think, you know, it's like, again, it's a bit of a luxury and at the same time, it's not a luxury because of the rules that exist around it of, you know, every payment is a taxable event. So that yeah. in general causes a lot of frustration with people to like really pick up and start using it more. So in general, one of the things I suspect, I haven't been able to confirm that in a report and all of the data I have, because there's no, you know, there's no IP addresses linked to this and no geographical data of any kind. But I suspect a lot of the adoption has been outside the US. Um, and where I was able to confirm that a bit was through Thunder Games data, which is also in the report, to just see like where is their activity coming from, like where are people playing these games, running some sets, and that is largely outside the US as well. Gotcha. So, uh, this show is brought to you by the Cold Card Hardware Wallet. My favorite setup, which I know I talk about a lot, is the Nunchuck Wallet on mobile that just connects directly to or just talks NFC whenever I need to sign. The Nunchuck does not hold my keys. It is securely on my cold card, not connected to the internet, not vulnerable to a phishing email or any malware or anything like that. If I ever need to send a transaction, I just create the transaction on my Nunchuck wallet and I tap it to my cold card. I hit sign, I tap it again, and then off it goes. There is no easier interface and way of interacting that grants a higher level of security, in my opinion, than that right there. It's genuinely incredible to me that we even have this capability in the Bitcoin space. And CoinKite has just made an entire suite of fascinating security and just fun Bitcoin devices and hardware products, like the block clock. Just connect it to your node and have it show the, the Bitcoin price, have it show the block height, just right there on your desk in this really cool package. If you haven't checked out what they have to offer, you definitely need to. And don't, when you go over there, do not forget that I have a 9% discount code. Bitcoin Audible, all one word, gets you 9% off. And you can go through the link in the show notes or just remember the discount code, which is not hard. It's just the name of the show. Um, uh, you can go through the link in the show notes to go right there or just go to the store, browse around, see what you want, get yourself a solid hardware wallet, experience the tap to send with a cold card hardware wallet. It is, it's just kind of magical. And uh, get notified for the Q1. I'm really stoked about my, my Cypherpunk BlackBerry, the new model that's going to be coming out. So check that out as well. Um, and uh, yeah, don't forget, 9% off. The link is right in the show notes. Go check them out. What do you think the biggest challenges that are still here? Like what are, what are Lightning's continued biggest challenges? And, and probably as a follow-up to that, um, how do you think our view of Lightning has changed over the last few years? Yeah, I think that's a great question. On, on the biggest challenge that's still here, like, well, there were two questions. They were both great, I think. Um, on the challenge that's still here, everyone will raise it. It's just the liquidity thing. It's mm -hmm. not intuitive for the average person to think in this way. And uh, speaking of Phoenix Wallet earlier, not to criticize them in any way, but they, you know, they, they released some kind of update to help people with this, to help them with liquidity, but it's not written in a way that the average person will understand. And someone made a great mock-up of like, it, like in the app I mean there, someone made a great mm -hmm. mock-up of 
this is what it should actually ask you. It should ask you like how much bit like how much Bitcoin or how much volume in payments do you ex- expect to get on like a monthly basis or something? That's mm-hmm. in terms people can think about. But if you ask them like how many sets do you want to get in liquidity? People just <laughs> or like like what do you want to set up or how much do you want to buy, et cetera? People are just like what is that? Why mean? do I have to do this? <laughs> this is very confusing. I have so, a homework assignment. Yeah. Yeah. And it could be that the team is already working on this, that they've seen that, uh, that they mm-hmm. agree with it. Um, and, you know, at least they have some of these features and other wallets don't. So definitely by no means throwing shade at them. Um, I think it's good that they are working this thing out. But then you also hear back from the community that says like, hey, this is not the most logical way to do this. It will probably confuse beginners. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's just definitely a big hurdle there in, in helping users understand how this stuff works, that it's still Bitcoin. Um, ultimately, you know, when you show someone in person how to do a lightning payment, it looks super simple. But the mm-hmm. moment they start trying to figure some more things out around it, they actually want to know how it works. Uh, you know, like if they should be running their own node and whatnot. It's not that there aren't plenty of tutorials. It's just that so much of this stuff is over people's heads. Yeah. So for now, to me, it feels at large scale still like a tool for Bitcoiners. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it's a great, like super flashy, amazing, like well-performing tool to introduce beginners to it, but to really get them over that hump and to get them to become power users in a way, or to just use it frequently, that can still be, uh, be pretty tricky to help yeah. people, uh, understand the, the power of it. And in some places that's going amazing where you have circular economies around it and where you really have someone on the ground, just holding people by the hands to walk them through all these processes. But, um, at large, that's like, I guess, part of why it's still, uh, in its relatively early stages as people are just struggling to figure out, should I be using it? And historically, like, especially over the past years, fees have been relatively low. So the need hasn't been there as much. Mm -hmm. And that obviously plays a big role in like, will people even bother to use it paired with the fact that a lot of exchanges weren't supporting it yet. Uh, and some of the biggest ones still aren't so, um, you know, for a lot of people, that's like if they're um, a Coinbase user, for example, that is their interface with Bitcoin. That's all they know. And there are a couple of other wallets like this where that's just all they know. That's how they interact with Bitcoin. And like many of them won't even transact on chain in a lot of cases. So they're never going to figure out what Lightning is and play around with it if they don't install a separate Lightning wallet. And how yeah. do you educate the user on, hey, like the wallet that you have, it doesn't have Lightning functionality, but there is this thing called the Lightning Network that exists, allows you to make those payments very quickly and cheaply across long distances. Uh, and yeah, it's just tricky to, to educate people on that because I feel like, but why do I, like if they don't have a use case, why do I need this? Why should I do yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially so if they're really using like, Coinbase as their wallet to go pay, pay for stuff. They don't even understand yeah. why that's a terrible idea. <laughs> they just see it as an investment and aren't using it for payments. So I think in general to your question, like where is the, yeah, yeah. what are the big challenges still? It's just that Bitcoin does not currently have a sort of a product market fit as a medium of exchange in most places. There are mm-hmm. absolutely some places where this is growing or where people are doing amazing work, but a lot of the sort of people who have seen this as an investment historically just don't use it to pay for stuff, which is like always a bit of a chicken and egg problem. And then you have like regulations thrown in in the US as well that just makes it uh, really annoying to be able to do payments without having to deal with all the tax implications of that. 
So those things, they all play a role, but in practice, the reality is that it's just not as much of a medium of exchange yet as a lot of people would like it to be. There's tons of enthusiasm around this and people really want to make it happen. And I applaud all those efforts, but the reality is just that it's, that's like an uphill battle at the moment. It's not a, you know, we're not scrambling to keep up with the users. It's like really figuring yeah. out uh, like the other way around, like how do we make Where them want to use this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So point. I think that's, uh, that's absolutely still a big challenge. And then I think your second question was on, um, trying to recall, could you repeat it for me if you remember? Yeah, I'll actually make a comment on that and then bring back that other question. Oh, so I've been reading a book called the cold start, the cold start problem. I'm not sure if you've read it. Um, no, I've heard about it. I, I think I know the overall, uh, it's thesis. really good. It's really good. Um, I've been uh, going down a, a different rabbit hole in my audio books recently. And this is kind of at the beginning of a list. Um, but one of the things that was really interesting to me is because this person, I can't even remember the author's name right now was like really high up and really involved in Uber and thinking about how they set up their networks and that, you know, most people usually think of network effects as positive things when, for a huge portion of the time, they're actually deeply negative. They actually work against you because if you don't have a certain network density, then even the people who come and join can't use it for anything and then they leave yep. immediately. Um, and talked about this concept of the atomic network. And I find it interesting that you're, you were saying that like, like in the context of like people actually using it on the ground and like merchant adoption and stuff is that they are happening in certain places, but broadly it's still non-existent or it's still just like not there yeah. um but what's funny is this is one of the things that they specifically attacked at uber is that they knew that like if they had they could have ten thousand drivers but if it was five drivers in you know two thousand cities it was it was the most useless network in the world but if they had a hundred drivers or two hundred drivers in one city if they had that network density well, then they can actually build out an atomic network. They can build out a network yeah. that's large enough in a small place that it can actually sustain itself. And then they kind of prove the case and then they can do it again in the next city, like right next door. Um, and it's funny that it kind of seems like both in the context of like merchant adoption and lightning, uh, but even in, in, in general in Bitcoin, really, that seems to be kind of happening naturally. Yeah, that, Absolutely. That, that we've seen that in like El Salvador. And do you have any more kind of insight on specifically what you are seeing there? And is that, am, am I correct? Like, am I thinking that I see something that I see? Or is it like, do you have any input on maybe that thought, I guess? <laughs> yeah, I think there's there's two ways of of kind of approaching that problem. It's like the way you're saying from Uber, it's kind of, planned by the company obviously mm -hmm. like they produce a strategy around this and then act on that and that's how you're seeing it in lightning space too where activity gathers around specific solutions that companies have built and there's obviously a lot in podcasting and whatnot um, uh, as one example and in gaming as another example so that's one angle of it the other is just the physical angle of hey we're here locally together we can pay each other for goods and services in bitcoin and those just tend to be powerful. So it has to be a concept or a place that sort of ties people together or like a, a certain activity. And that makes it take off because then people start feeling a reason and a need to use it. Um, 
And it just makes them feel far more involved. You get a much stronger bond as a result. The habit is more easily created. So um, I guess like it's just naturally the way that humans organize themselves and sort of see a need to really start picking something up. And my guess would be that's just the, the kind of use cases or the uses where those either of those factors don't really exist. That's where the adoption will be more limited. Uh, yeah. Like just a person at home, um, if they, you know, they could buy their things with lightning online and there are, you know, there's plenty of stores and I see on your microphone, you have bit refill there, for example, there's people <laughs> yeah. who can do that, but they yeah. need to make that connection of, Hey, this store exists and I can go pay there and uh, I know what I can get there. But for the average consumer at home that has a lightning wallet and that doesn't know about that company, they're not going to make the connection of, Hey, I should go to this website now. And instead of, you know, just directly buying a thing on a site here, I can actually pay over lightning for it. Uh, through them, for example. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think like that's that's kind of my thoughts on that. It's kind of funny too, you know, especially in just reading that book. Um, the section I just got through was talking about Slack and how they had the exact same like realization in building it out because Slack is like a. It, it was essentially built as like, how do we fix all the problems of the IRC? Um, when they created it. And one of the things they did is they target like, okay, rather than trying to get a bunch of different people in different companies, let's, let's go to one company and see if we can't get like a hundred people in this business using yep. it because they actually had a, they measured a threshold of how likely are you to get a response and how long, how, how much time is there going to be in getting a response that it needs to be under this threshold or whatever to actually keep people coming back to it, looking for yep. the notification or looking for the, update in the conversation and yeah. it's funny in using like keat and then in using like protocols like like noster and lightning it's almost crazy to think like how big of a challenge this is from a company perspective it's almost like how does a protocol ever get off the ground it's playing <laughs> you know, life on hard mode if you go decentralized yeah it's so nuts to think about because you don't really have any of that advantage of like targeting like how to yep. keep it alive. Like you just kind of have to hope that the community does this itself, that it, that it yep. naturally pulls from that. That it starts so. sort of marketing and spreading it and evangelizing it towards yeah. people who have specific interests and goals. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, might've been Mark Andreessen who wrote about this like a long time ago, um, related to this kind of chicken and egg problem. Like, how do you solve that? How, how do you get to it, like if you're creating some kind of marketplace, for example, or something that needs a network effect, like how do you get people going in that? And mm -hmm. it was always, like you said here, it's like focusing on a specific sort of subgroup, like a niche area in which people feel very strongly about something. And that's like for Nostr, for example, that was the Bitcoin crowd. Like it's just a really, yeah. you know, very vocal group of people with strong beliefs that band together there. The risk that you then get, of course, is that they're like, it creates some kind of echo chamber if it doesn't really branch out, but obviously like big people in Bitcoin have broad interests and they are trying to accomplish a wide variety of goals for just communities and people around the world that don't have access to financial services or that are being oppressed in some kind of way. So you can start pulling in those sort of adjacent communities as well that can then grow out. And that is what helps the network grow ultimately. Yeah. So uh, as, as long as that kind of exists and there is a clear link between that solution that's being created and kind of those different communities or different groups of people that are having problems with things, then it can grow. Uh, if that's not really there, like if we were all into 
I don't know, like VR or something, that's not going to necessarily solve a problem for people that are being oppressed in lots of different places. It's harder to band those people together. So then you need to go find whole other groups of people that are somehow, you know, that were somehow solving those problems for. Yeah, the commonality is easier because the problem, the money problem is widespread and yep. disparate among communities. So there, there is that like kind of connecting branch. And then the other good thing, I think that particularly like the things like Keat and Noster, um, well, it, Keat is just a chat app, but uh, Hypercore and Noster um, is, uh, uh, is that even focusing, like thinking about it from the context of like the atomic network, um, is, uh, the, is that Bitcoin, like, like you said, on Nuster, Bitcoin is that atomic network is that if we keep focusing on that, the good, th the good thing is that the Bitcoin network itself will continue to grow, which will make Nuster a great place to aggregate, you know, to, to pull together. Um, so yeah. you have the, the other good the, one of the positive eff uh, effects of the network effect in the operation of these is that the Bitcoin network effect benefits these other ones and vice versa. So despite all of the cold start problems that you have in both, um, they do at least feedback on each other in a positive way uh, when they work. <laughs> yep. um, yeah, agreed. Uh, uh, so the going back to the second question of the original thing that got this whole thread started um, was how do you think our view or perception right. of lightning has changed and or will continue to change? Like, what do you see going forward as well? Yeah, I've been uh, like a lot of other people, you know, you see all the discussions online about how things in Bitcoin have been developing over the past years. People are a little bit more divided these days on a lot of those topics, uh, yeah. or at least, you know, some people will try to make it look that way, kind of like in <laughs> politics in a way, like everyone's <laughs> yeah, yeah. really like they're strong opposing camps and uh, in reality, you know, like it's called 95% of the people are kind of just looking at a couple of people shouting at each other and going like, wow, those guys are crazy. <laughs> um, I think like as a result, you know, people have become aware, like, okay, and, and more conscious and just talking a little bit more about the issues that lightning has and the challenges that it has, because we are mm -hmm. a couple of years later and then people just start looking like in a way from my perspective, also people look for something to blame. Like, why don't we have billions of users on Bitcoin yet? It must be Lightning's fault. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, like, again, like not really, because while on-chain fees were low, blocks weren't full necessarily. So it's just really clear that the medium of exchange use case is relatively limited today. And even if Lightning worked perfectly for anyone on the planet, that doesn't mean that everyone would be using it. People are yeah. still struggling to wrap their heads around that and they want to blame the technology they want to pick out a group of developers and be like, hey, it's, you know, it's your fault. You guys pushed through this thing with your, uh, you know, with all of your technical plans and things, but it didn't Segwit accomplish. did it. <laughs> yeah, it, it didn't accomplish the global scale that we wanted. And yeah. it's like, you know, you can shout at people or try to blame people or whatever, but what are, you know, like, what are we going to accomplish with that? Um, I don't think too much. It's just like the way I personally look at Lightning is, no matter what happens next, we've learned a ton from it. Uh, and from all of the research that I could do uh, or that I've done, I could really see that everyone who is trying to build like any kind of scalability solution, they are all looking at how can it interact with Lightning in some kind of way? How can it be interoperable? Mm -hmm. We're not trying to compete with it. 
or just building on some of the strengths that it has, trying to do something different, making different trade-offs and learning from the things that didn't work well over there. Um, and there's still so much about lightning itself that can be improved. But of course, some people, you know, they just want Bitcoin to go to the moon. They want to make a whole bunch of money and they want good narratives like, you know, Bitcoin can actually handle global scale payment traffic. So yeah. you should all buy it. Like they just want <laughs> these kinds of narratives, not to actually use it themselves in all cases, it's but great anything that makes the thing look yeah. amazing. And uh, it it can be hard for people to look at like tweets, Nostra posts or whatever, like where, wherever people are shouting that the thing needs to be fixed as soon as possible, it can be really easy, easy to kind of get dragged into that and to start believing that, yes, this is super urgent. We must fix this at global scale within the next three years or we're in deep trouble. Um, people get sort of lost in that train of thought and get very worked up about it. And then people just start getting vocal online and, and start shouting at each other and making it a bigger deal than it is. Yeah. But um, in general, I think we're just, we're going to learn a ton from lightning. I'm like, from my perspective, I'm pretty sure. I think it's very likely that it's going to stick around for a long time because it just does solve, especially at a business scale, like for businesses, even for exchanges to just easily settle among each other. Um, there's just so many different things it is useful for, whether it's going to be like a consumer solution in the long run, you know, remains to be seen. Um, and, you know, maybe other things will emerge, build on top of it or related to it, or would just do something completely different. But I don't think it's been uh, as much of a waste of time or anything like that as some people try to position it to yeah. kind of further their own agenda in uh, various ways. So uh, yeah. I look at it very positively and I am, you know, there's a ton of super smart people working on it that are solving the hard problems. And uh, I definitely wouldn't bet against them either to see like, what can they figure out? How can they improve it? So uh, in general, I think it's been amazing for Bitcoin and I'm uh, very curious to see what more comes out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Something I've been talking about for a couple of years on the show is that um, like, it seemed to me that the way things were going and where lightning was going to be insanely powerful was as a business financial services and like mobile and application services infrastructure that it is going to be a incredible payment infrastructure for the pro user that is providing something at another layer like at, at another level you know like where you know the game developer puts up with slightly more complexity or slightly puts up with a lot more complexity and issues in how they operate than the user does you know the user wants everything fed to them and in that sense that, uh, in fact, Chris Dixon uh, has a really interesting piece that I just stumbled upon the other day. Um, I think I got rec I think I, it was mentioned in one of the books. It might even have been in Cold Start. Um, I don't know. I'm listening to like three books at once. It's, it's a little bit hard to go back and forth. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, Chris Dixon has a piece uh, from 2010 that is titled, uh, and I was immediately like, oh, I got to save this and check this out just from the title. But um, I started reading through it and it's, and it's really good. I might do it on the show. Um, but it says, like I said, from 2010, it says, the next big thing is going to look like a toy. And it's about the idea that when something starts out, it's going to be used in some niche or kind of like silly or kind of like toy use case to kind of prove that it does the job. 
And then it's mm-hmm. going to be upgraded out of that era, so to speak. Yeah. Like when it finally becomes serious infrastructure, it's going to be something different. And one of the things that I've noticed about Lightning is that, um, and this is something that uh, Ben the Carmen talked about in the news post that he did recently about like the challenges, like all the issues with Lightning or rethinking Lightning is what it was called. Also on the show last week um, uh, was that, uh, uh, how, how did you put it? Uh, oh, 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 at scale. That's what it was. That's what it was. Is that Lightning Network from a end user non-custodial perspective has lots of trouble, like, like it has a lot of issues. But after you scale up to your, your node to a certain point and you kind of have like a certain position on the network, like you kind of get almost like you have to bootstrap how your node talks to the network, like, like yeah. it's, it's connections, then it works phenomenally. Like, like it's like night and day between the various challenges. Like once you solve the liquidity problem largely for yourself and what's going through it, management is vastly easier on the other side of that. Um, and so at scale, so it seems like this like middle scale, like, like, like kind of a prosumer or a, it's almost like lightning has the potential to open up this space of service provision in payments and uh, kind of financial services. I mean, it's, it's silly to call it that because, you know, it's software and it's, these aren't going to be banks, you know, these, these are going to be, this is going to be um, an ecosystem of people trying to, it's like, it's going to be like people hosting websites and saying they're holding broadcast communication services. Like, well, no, they're, they're making websites. Um, so we have to think about it differently from that perspective, but that there's going to be this entire landscape of service provision that's just been untouchable for so long because you haven't had this open permissionless network to build on top of. Um, but that the end user is the one that gets all of the problems. And that's why like things like the LSP model have been so successful and so necessary at the same time. So at the end of the day, I think it's, it seems more likely and maybe this long rant here is just, I'm asking if you agree or if you see something different, um, is that the user is going to end up largely interacting with a layer three. Or maybe you could say that it's a second layer, it's a different layer two, yeah, and that Lightning is kind of the interoperable communication yep. web between these things. Uh, Fediment being obviously the prime example, but I think we don't really know what that's going to look like. Um, yep. I think it's going to be a huge, diverse ecosystem of those things, and Lightning is going to be kind of that that joint communication channel it will be the it'll be the language that makes them all feel like they work together even though they're separate yeah and i think that's something i've historically seen in bitcoin as well is that you know there's often there is no roadmap mm-hmm. but if you are sort of technical enough to understand what just various developers around the community are talking about and what kind of direction they're thinking then i would say you know i can't speak for all of bitcoin obviously but i would say that there is a general belief at the moment that that's the likely direction that we're growing in that, you know, either mm-hmm. some kind of adjacent L2 or a potential layer three like solution or both at the same time is also very likely. Yeah. But yeah. that's the kind of direction people are expecting the next explorations in. And then again, people can go and freak out and be like, you know, everyone needs to be able to use this and the fees need to be super low for everyone. Um, still, you know, remains to be seen a bit whether that's 
the case sort of like how, sort of how urgent that is. We would all love for people to be using Bitcoin, but um, you know there are just limitations and challenges to figure out there, and they take time. And people have this perspective that oh yeah, you know if developers wouldn't be working on Lightning, then I'm sure they could just you know instantly within a few months come up with something better. Like, why don't you guys abandon that and go do something else? And it's like that's not how it works either, man. It's uh, it's tricky. So I think high time preference, man. High yeah, time preference. It's everywhere. exactly. It's uh, it's like that's the kind of sense that I'm getting in general with the direction that people are thinking in. Um, similar thing with I think you had a, a, a episode about BitVM recently. Similar kind of yes. thinking there, like yeah. you know, we could just try things out there instead of implementing something like drive changes. Try it out on BitVM, which doesn't need any uh, consensus changes, and maybe we learn interesting things from them, like whether something works or whether it doesn't work. And mm -hmm. based on that, we learn and we grow and we either implement it or we don't. So yeah. uh, I think like, you know, people have definitely learned there's a lot of interesting tools from a developer perspective that can be introduced in the software. SegWit was one of the, like, I've always explained it to people as like, uh, it's kind of funny. Like, I think the first time I had someone next to me ask like, what is SegWit at some kind of meetup or whatever? And this other guy started explaining the whole technical thing to him and his face was just like, what the hell are you going on about? And I was like, dude, <laughs> it is a, it's a tool for developers to be able to allow Bitcoin to scale. It's like a stepping stone towards innovation. That's all yeah. they need to know. And similar with Taproot, it's a stepping stone to be able to do privacy-related things to, again, mm -hmm. like help scalability and whatnot. And that's all that 99% of people need to know who even dare to ask that question. <laughs> so in a similar way, you know, yeah. there's tons of tools that we could introduce but people have become a bit hesitant about these tools and they're, again, like high time preference. They want to see results from those tools as soon as possible mm -hmm. because even Taproot itself, when it was implemented, took a while for developers to really start exploring how it could be used in various ways. And now a lot of people don't like or a bunch of people don't like what came out of that uh, with mm -hmm. with uh, ordinals and whatnot. So I got stupid stamps on my blockchain. Exactly. So then you get this whole kind of like ossification crowd of people who don't want to see any more changes. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, I think most reasonable people understand like, hey, you know, you can't just say we're not going to change anything anymore, but then at the same time have the ambition of everyone needs to be able to self-custody their Bitcoin. Yeah. So, so, so everyone kind of feels for the most part, something needs to happen here. There are various directions we can think of. Um, I would start, you know, I would start getting worried if developers stop coming up with any kind of ideas. If they're just not seeing any kind of way out of it, um, if there's really nothing that can be done to help things improve and scale and become more private, like the brightest lines are, are out of uh, gunpowder, so to speak, that's when I would worry. But until they keep coming up with interesting ideas and like, you know, while the momentum keeps going uh, in development in general, personally, I'm not too worried about it. I'm just trying to do what I can to help educate people around some of these concepts. You are doing the same um, to make sure that people don't listen as much to, you know, the ones freaking out online and being very hysterical about Bitcoin being broken fundamentally <laughs> and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Um, just being the bridge between the technical and the non-technical. It's amazing how many translation problems there are. Like yep. just translation between developers and users, like at every level. Like not not just like even across languages, but then across languages and groups and then yep. cultures and then level of knowledge and like just somebody asking what SegWit is, you know, like yep. that could yep. be a 50 minute conversation 
or that could be two lines of this is what you need to know. Um, exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. And right. and not everyone like especially that's kind of why I got into Bitcoin or like not why mm-hmm. but like how I got into it because initially when I learned about it, it took me quite a few months to properly understand it because there was almost no non-technical documentation. Pretty much everyone into yeah. it was a very technical person. Mm-hmm. I was a young dude, no understanding of any of this stuff, very little understanding of economics either. And I was just like, I don't understand any of these people. And then along <laughs> came Andreas Antonopoulos, who started speaking. When did you in, get into it? Uh, like late 2013. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. So, yeah, you know, he started giving presentations or whatnot. And then he was yeah. like, uh, like I was like, oh, someone I can understand. But I was like, well, if this is the only guy that someone like me can understand, then we probably need more of those guys. So yeah. maybe I can become a lesser version of him or just do different stuff. Yeah. Um, so that's why I got into education around Bitcoin and why I stuck around. Nice. Because uh, I I realized there's going to be a big need for this stuff or, you know, it's never going to take off if it takes everyone like three to six months to understand what Bitcoin is, how a lightning wallet works or whatnot. Yeah. So uh, that's what I'm going to be focusing a lot of my efforts on moving forward as well. It's just making yeah. that onboarding easier. So... Swan Bitcoin has the full suite of Bitcoin financial services. You can instantly buy with your bank account or wire transfer any amount of Bitcoin up to $10 million worth. And you can easily set up what I have been doing for ages, which is an automatic purchase of Bitcoin on a weekly or monthly basis. You just pick your time frame and then automatically withdraw it to your cold storage. And still they have free withdrawals to self-custody, which I was sure would be gone by now. But you should always treat any custodian as a point of failure. And luckily, you won't have to go anywhere for all of the information and advice you need for why you should withdraw and how to do it safely. Because Swan Bitcoin has all of the resources you need and will regularly remind you. About 80% or more of their customers automatically withdraw their coins. That is an amazing feat, if you ask me. Then they also have the Swan IRA if you have a traditional IRA and you want to get it out allocated to Bitcoin. And there's so much more. With Swan Private, they have inheritance planning. You also have Swan business accounts, and you can even do Bitcoin as a part of your employee benefit plans. They have an advisory. They have the Swan Vault, a multi-sig service for, for those who want to have the benefits of holding the majority of their keys, but still also want to be able to rely on a trusted institution in the case of an emergency or a disaster. If you haven't started into Bitcoin yet, Swan is an amazing place to begin. Go to swan.com slash guy. The link will be right there in the description. Again, that is swan.com slash guy. And they will know that I sent you and my beautiful face will be right there at the top of the page to greet you. I am a longtime user myself and a huge thank you to Swan for supporting this show. And I definitely recommend you check them out. Sweet. Sweet. Hell yeah. We, they need many, many, many more of us. (laughs) Like the, like I said, the translation problems are probably only getting it bigger, especially with AI and everything like the speed with which I, in fact, there was, um, something I read recently. What was this from? God is the worst when you just have like this stack. Um, uh, but it was something about how, like why technological revolutions take so long when, certain technologies actually from the theoretical standpoint obviously could move at an aggressive rate like like way way faster 
And it was specifically because of the time, like it, the, the limitation of the technological revolution isn't the technology. It's the fact yeah. that people have to understand what the technology is and how to use it. And that literally takes basically a generation. It takes like 10 to 20 years oh, every yeah. single time. So yeah, earlier yeah, last I'm, I'm year, yeah. earlier last year, I actually wrote about this because I did another report on Bitcoin versus the global payments industry. Yeah. And I just really wanted to make the point clear with all these people who have the expectation that within a few years, a large percentage of the global population is going to switch over to using Bitcoin for payments. So I looked into the global stats in there and I obviously don't recall them off the top of my head, but I had some things where basically if everyone was fully informed today on what their options are for different cross-border payments, then the average fee that people pay for cross-border payments would drop from, and this is just with traditional payments means, it would drop from about 6.2 to 3.2% on average. So just if people wow. knew better how to use international fiat rails, like various app solutions, et cetera. Stuff that's been around forever. Yeah. Then it could already improve that much indeed. And I also had some stats in there around uh, e-commerce, how there were, uh, I don't recall the exact numbers, but they were really staggering how a very large percentage of people have just never done an e-commerce transaction whatsoever. Really? So just knowing that, and like obviously this evolves over time in a lot of countries, but there were still a whole bunch of countries where that's just not a thing. Like where wow. relatively few people are doing that. And as a result, like knowing that, you know, that people have never bought something online before, like how are they mm -hmm. going to switch over to Bitcoin? They, they're barely <laughs> they you know, doing digital the, payments. They, they don't even have, it's like, it's like teaching somebody how to tie their shoes and they're like, I don't have shoes, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, oh man, that's so, crazy. Uh, yeah. That takes time. I think like, I'm going to quickly search. Yeah, what's the name of that article? Uh, so it's um, Bitcoin versus the $156 trillion global payments industry uh, is that report. So I have the data point here. I just found it in the report. Mm -hmm. uh, and it basically said that an estimated 39% of the global population over the age of 15 had made a payment to a digital merchant in 2021 globally. So that means that two-thirds of the global adult population just doesn't do e-commerce. Wow. A lot of people just buy their stuff locally, obviously. And it seems so impossible to believe, but then if you understand a bit like how the global population is distributed, yeah. you have tons of people in Asia and very densely packed countries where there's just a lot of stuff that you need available locally, mm -hmm. then uh, that cuts out a really big part. And then obviously just families living together, you'll have one person in the family doing the online shopping versus everyone there. So ultimately, that's the one you might want to educate about Bitcoin. And uh, it might not initially be the other part of the family, similar to what you were saying with uh, Fedimint, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that will be concentrated around. You might just have a couple of people in the, in the village who are more digitally inclined and they'll do this stuff. And it's not going to be the entire community there necessarily that uh, starts doing this. That could take yeah. a couple more decades, a couple more generations. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, uh, do you mind sending me a link to that? I wrote down the sure. title, but just, uh, just so I can we'll have do. it, I'm curious. Um, you said this is about a year ago? Um, close to, no, I was released in like June or something like that, I think. Okay. Okay. Well, sweet. No, I'll definitely check that one out. Thank you. Um, I'll send it to you right away. I'm curious as well. Um, regulation, you, you mentioned being in a first world country a couple of times. 
Yeah. And then we caveat it a little bit later of ascending and descending. <laughs> uh, regulate a handful of regulations have kind of come across the, the pipeline that seem a little bit crazy to me, um, especially like the IRS in the $10,000, any and all $10,000 transactions. Like you have to um, uh, get social security number, uh, name, details, everything like that. And it seems like a such a profound misunderstanding of what a push system is. <laughs> you know, like like I could receive 10,000. Technically, technically, Sam, if you want to do this, you could send me $10,000 in denominated in Bitcoin right now. And I would Are have no idea. I'm, I am encouraging you. I am encouraging you. Um, and I would have, I would not, I would have no idea it was you. Like I would, there's nothing I can do to stop the payment. Like there's, like I have no control over it. You are the one with the control over that Bitcoin and you should yeah. send it to me the next time you think about this. Um, but how does that factor into maybe specifically at River since you're, you have internal conversations with people. What? What do you do about that? And in, in Lightning, as much as you know, $10,000 payments don't really happen over Lightning, well, I am doing 500 and I've even done 1000 or more dollar mm -hmm. denominated payments over Lightning now. Um, and every year the price goes up, I have more liquidity. And I don't have to do anything for that extra liquidity, yeah. especially denominated in $10,000 in, in dollars, you know? When they start coming through, like that seems like a regulation that's so completely out of the scope of, I just have yeah. no idea how this works. I, how would you even address it? Is that even a concern right now? Do you just kind of expect that that's just going to make this whole thing, not, not lightning and Bitcoin and stuff, but just like their idea of like, this is how we're going to regulate things implode on itself? or by itself i don't know what's what's the thoughts what's the general thoughts on those sorts yeah, of things it's it's a hard one because you're really like you know how are they going to take this in yeah what, what are they going to come up with um you get you can get a vague idea like it's going to be as evasive as possible likely mm -hmm. and as annoying as possible because also like lightning is not at the scale yet where you know it's it's so big that they feel like oh we're really going to disrupt so much stuff here if we mess too much with it like Bitcoin is now mm -hmm. kind of at the scale where they're realizing, I think probably more so with the ETFs coming in, uh, people are just realizing like, okay, we can't just, you know, like the US banning it at this point, like very few people believe that's even a realistic possibility. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, or like outlawing it in some kind of roundabout way, um, which was recently discussed, I think with Elizabeth Warren on like proposals and whatnot. So it's a bit less likely to happen there. I could see them be difficult about lightning and trying to restrict that in various ways. Um, but yeah, it's like, you know, we're always evaluating the risks and things that might happen in the future. I think in general, it's for now, it's just like, wait and see what comes up. And in the meantime, just keep building and innovating and like get ahead of the regulation in a way so that when things get pulled back, that uh, they can't pull it back as far anymore because the technology is just superior to whatever opinion people yeah. end up having that's yeah uh, it's a i think point. a bit of the general thinking but you know that's also that's a thought that's an ambition that's a, a goal but 
making it happen in reality will be pretty hard as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I guess that's, that's always been kind of the cypherpunk perspective is like, well, maybe yep. we can build faster than they can even figure out what to do about it. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Just keep it up. Um, and honestly with AI on the scene, um, it's, it's crazy. Um, the, th- this is, you know, more AI unchained content, but the, the R1, the little rabbit, do you see the little device? Yep. Um, so the the big thing that I think, and I'll probably do an episode about this. I don't I don't see how I don't. Um, uh, the big thing from that was their new LAM as opposed to LLM, the yep. large action model. Like as we get to a point where you can teach AI to just use the program that you use, um, and it can execute actions and perform tasks within that program, like. I, I don't know. I haven't seen anything about it, but have you seen any indication of AI entering the sort of channel management and like lightning software space at all yet? Um, because I see that outside of the potential risks, I see that as mm-hmm. an insanely powerful tool for rather than giving someone some automated piece of software in the sense that there's a bunch of if this, then that sort of structure of like how to manage your channels you could literally have something that kind of learns. Like Mm -hmm. it can look at the data itself and decide what worked and what didn't and then make quote unquote manual adjustments automatically. Um, So not only just in the sense of technology that this could basically feedback on itself at an aggressive rate for the people who understand how to implement this, but more just like on the ground have you seen any of this yet i know we're super super early on any sort of implementation but i was just curious yeah um i think like as far as ai goes i think lightning labs was the one talking about that the most and just trying to get people's you know trying to get a bit of momentum going there to make people think about how could we start building solutions that interact with this uh mm-hmm. to think is good to you know, kind of evangelize a bit and see, like, does anything creative come out of that? I don't think I've really seen it being used much in practice because for the most part, all the rebalancing stuff, you mm-hmm. know, they're, they're relatively simple rules, I think, for the most part that have yeah. been used so far. And yeah. people are seeing good enough results from that. And I would say, like, that. what's also the payoff? Like, if you had an AI that was even better at rebalancing and figuring out what... Uh, like what channels to open and, and like where to have your uh, uh, flows come in and whatnot. How much I think does it matter? Like, yeah. yeah, what's the actual payoff? And if you look at a, a yeah. river, I think we also have numbers in the report that I added from what we're earning on the Bitcoin that we have in there. Mm-hmm. And it's for now, it's a relatively low amount. It's like 1% per year. Mm-hmm. If you are someone who's manually doing this and super dedicated, uh, like historically, I've seen people are earning like over 10% per year, but still that is, you know, if that's a full-time job or something, at least you're spending a significant amount of time on, it's called a mm-hmm. part-time project or something, then still that's a lot of time that you're putting in to earn 10%. Um, and that also doesn't scale infinitely. At some point it just caps off and there's only marginal, so much liquidity. Diminishing marginal returns most likely. Yeah. Yep. Yes, sir. So I think from that perspective, like as long as there is some kind of limitation there, there is a bit less need as well for AI to come in there and to really maximize that. If Lightning would continue to grow significantly and those kind of numbers start picking up, then it gets super interesting. 
I think for everyone involved as well. So that would yeah. then be a bit of a next step to level that up. Yeah, and that's a good point too. It, may, it might make more sense that even though that could be like really great when you're looking at it from like kind of a service provision side and if you have a set of rules that are simple enough that you can automate it with just a basic script, um, then you don't you don't get an outsized advantage to have an AI do it. And then kind of going back to your idea of like how much if people just use the fiat rails properly that are available right now, they can go from six percent to three percent. There's probably so many larger advantages of just doing simple techniques and yep. utilizing simple tools that ha are and have been available rather than trying to figure out some new AI thing um, in yeah, that the, context. And this is so yeah. often the case. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, just regular automation already makes such a big difference. And in the yeah. discussion earlier on, you know, like what are the trends that we're seeing? How long does it take to adopt certain technologies? Just very often you realize it's like stuff is not even automated or done in some old school process. Um, and even automating it, like it doesn't pay itself back that easily in lots of cases either. So lots of stuff just doesn't get automated and continues to be done manually. So that, you know, it's also very much the case with AI where people in general, since the AI sort of revolution with, uh, you know, a lot of large language models coming up and whatnot and image generation, people just very quickly see the dystopian future of this stuff is going to take over everything. But like sort of the more on the ground you are and the more you try to use it, like earlier today, I was just struggling with chat GPT so hard. Like I was just, you know, just asking it, like how much Bitcoin is there going to be by the year 2050, for example, if we're currently at this block and like, uh, you know, there's halvings and whatnot, which it also knows it looks up yeah. and it just gives you a completely wrong answer. And it goes like it projects it over 21 million. Yeah. And then it says in the same sentence, like, yeah, assuming, you know, that or knowing that there will only be 21 million Bitcoin. And I'm like, knowing there will only be 21 million, there will be about 22 and a half. <laughs> dude, you're literally like, like saying the opposite thing. You're like, you're, you're contra contradicting yourself. You're saying yeah. that you can only go up to 21 million, but then you're showing me 21 and a half or something. Yeah. And then you point it out. It's like, oh, yeah, I'll rerun it. It reruns it. And again, you get a completely wrong result. Uh, and, you just give up. So with a lot of these things, it's like, this takes time, people. Uh, as exciting <laughs> and as flashy as it is, every impressive thing that you see it's with still technology. Rough. It's still rough. Yeah, so it's much time rough. and effort. It's always going to be the rough version in a sense. goes into that, know? yep. Yeah. So. Um, it's funny about ChatGPT specifically. Um, uh, the funny thing is, is when you're having a conversation, the a, a trick um, to do for something like that, if you're trying to actually get that information, um, is think about it in the context of like the conversation is you're asking it for to make connections between words and you want the connections in those words to perform a math problem. So what, what instead you do, or whenever I run into a problem exactly like this, I ran into this uh, doing like a little cipher, uh, uh, thing for a clue hunt for Christmas present. I did it with oh, cool. Chad, GPT. It could not in cipher do a simple substitution cipher at all like it did it for like four letters and then the whole rest of the stuff was just garbled nonsense um and the reason is is because it starts trying to just guess the weight from the letter and it just does a language model weighting not a cipher weighting um yeah. so what i had uh every time i now i'll say can you write me a simple script that predicts the um oh, yeah. 
the uh, Bitcoin block height or excuse me, the amount of Bitcoin at this point, assuming halvings and this block height and this, this and this. Um, And sometimes you can say, can you write me a script? And then the next question, can you execute this script? Can you run this and give me the result? And it will actually give you the result. It's not always the case. And I'm not sure what the, the thing is there, but. What it gave me in this case as well was actually, you know, you can click on the, you have this little button where it's like CD analysis. And then mm-hmm. you look at that and behind that is just a script, you know, it's not showing yep. it to you, but the, it is mm-hmm. behind that. And you're just looking through that, you know, Kevin's like, it's just wrong, you know? So then you point out like fix this script mm-hmm. and then again, it just goes off and does something yep. that it's not supposed to do. And yeah, just, you yep. know, it doesn't conclusion. work every time. It doesn't work Technology every time. Technology takes, takes time. Way. Like yeah. people are, uh. It, no, no matter what we invent for Bitcoin, like it, it doesn't matter what we do. We're not going to get the entire world on it within a couple of years. It's just not a yeah. thing. Yeah, it's not possible. And people need to find their peace with that and do their parts to help make it happen, I think. Yeah. Um, it's just being realistic. I really like Alex Vesky's theory of the three generations theory. Um, did, you, did you ever read that piece? Uh, I did not, but... I can I can get a general gist of what it's going to be. Uh, it's really good, and it's basically about like that the mental shift is bigger than is the more important thing, and then the understanding the technology like like you know smartphones didn't really become smartphones until you had a generation grow up that they had it when they were eight yep. and they didn't know a world without it, and then when they were twenty everything was on smartphones, you know. Um, and that, uh, and I can't remember exactly the details of why it was a very, very solid argument of why it's three generations and, and obviously mean that in the sense of like the 10 to 15 year like span. Yep. So 30 years out is where we should be looking for a hyper Bitcoinized world essentially is roughly the argument. Yep. Um, and, uh, and, and it's also, God, it bleeds, lends back to the thing we talked about earlier with the medium of exchange thing. And then also kind of the whole atomic networks idea is that like it didn't make it, it was very early on, like you got in in 2013. So you saw that like first initial and probably remember uh, as well or better than I do that first like jump of like, oh, the merchants are all going to have Bitcoin. And we had like overstock and we had uh, yeah, a new way, egg man. and all this stuff. I, it was like, it was happening. It's all happening. Every day right I went now. on Reddit, there was a new company <laughs> named that I never heard of that then now accepted Bitcoin. Yep. Yep. Um, and it wasn't until a couple of years later, like kind of like in my phase where I was trying to like postmortem, like what happened there and why did it stop? Um, where I was like, oh no, this is never like, we're so far out from this. Like not only do we need a new layer first, but, uh, and thinking about it more in the context of what I've been reading recently is that it suffers from the most potent network density problems. You know, if you have four businesses in your area, like in in like your city that accept lightning, you might as well have none. You know, but you could have you could have tens of thousands all around the world and still have a network that is completely useless from the context of a medium of exchange. Like you could boast 100,000 businesses now accept lightning and Bitcoin payments. Nothing. You're just completely yep. useless in you, that context. You go into one of those stores and they're like, "Like, what is this? I've not actually done this." <laughs> yeah, you're the first person to ever cross the network to to actually meet us and do this payment. Um, uh, 
So I've uh, we've already I've already left you or pulled you a little bit over time. I don't want to take too much of your time here. Um, do first. Yeah, I gotta thank go you. in a moment. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. But I wanted to finish this up with two things. One, uh, uh, can you tell the audience anything that you want them to know? How to find you? Uh, things that are coming up. And then two, I want to know what you've been reading recently or something sure. that you recommend as a reading. Uh, yeah. Option. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm also on Noster, but more passively just following things, not posting mm-hmm. as much. Um, but on Twitter, I'm at, at, at the SD Wouters, or just look for Sam Wouters, and then you'll find it on there. Link will be in the show um, notes. Yeah. <laughs> the stuff that I write can be found on River. Uh, I also work on River Learn, which is a big database of all kinds of articles on which people can learn about basic Bitcoin concepts. And uh, uh, as for what I've been reading, um, thing I tend to do is in my spare time, I don't read a lot of uh, nonfiction. I mostly read fiction because I always spend I love my days reading yeah. um, technical reading papers. Nonfiction. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like just all over it, I think. Um, but I've been like, in general, you know, I've been spending a bunch of time on mid journey as well. And rather than reading books about it, a lot of those, you know, types of tutorials and things like they're much more video focus or much more like here's a, a PDF with some like a great workflow to go through and to try out yourself. Yeah. So I've yeah. been enjoying a lot of that stuff because it's a bit more actionable. Mm-hmm. Whereas with reading, I love the part that makes you think so deep and I can tell like from all the people I've met in my life, I can really tell you were super deep into this and just like moving between all these books and reading them at the same time even. Mm-hmm. So uh I sometimes I just like to step away from that and just figure out something like what's an actionable thing I can do here and play around yeah. with and yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. different type of learning, I guess. So it doesn't concretely answer your question of like, oh, this is an amazing book, but that's that's just what I've been doing more of rather than like let me pick up another book here and just like absorb all this information. It's like just trying Looking to push for myself actionable to, information. Yeah, yeah, yeah to yeah. pick up a bit more of a different flow of learning to change things up a bit. Because I've yeah. been listening to so many podcasts for years. And, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, it's nice to do when you go on walks or you're doing chores around the house or whatever, but, uh, sometimes I'm also like, let's, you know, let's learn something new or do something practical here, uh, yeah. as a different way to learn stuff. And that's, yeah, there's uh, a lot in the podcast space that like you can't, and I run into this problem a lot is like, like I can't expect people to be sitting down on a computer. So there's a whole range of things of like kind of hands-on stuff that just will never come through an audio. It's it's got a lot of the benefits of like not having to have hands on like reading a book, but then a lot of the drawbacks of not having like kind of the video, like sitting in front like the environment in which people listen to it, you know, so like everything kind of have it has its place. Yep. Um, well, yeah, one book I can awesome. shout out to that I'm or at yeah. least like I'm really curious about it. The one that Aaron von Weirdom just released the, uh, oh. the Genesis book. Yes, That's definitely one I'll be curious to. Uh, oh yes, oh yes. In fact, I'm, I've been meaning to see if he is. Uh, uh, I haven't read it yet, so that's the only caveat I should it, add. But the Genesis book. But I haven't read it yet either. Um, and I know I've read like pretty much every piece that he's read about or written about cypherpunk history yeah. or whatever, and it's probably a lot yeah, in there. But still, yeah. I'm, I'm stoked about this book. Yeah, thank you awesome. for that one. Actually, um, all right. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, dude. Um, and if you could hang out for just a second after this, just yep. to make sure it uploads. Um, but seriously, it was it was wonderful having you on the show. I'm glad we finally did this. Um, and uh, maybe we will have something to talk about again in a year or two with new developments in Lightning and a new Layer 3, all sorts of cool stuff. So, yeah. Thanks everybody, a lot for having me. It was fun. 
100%, man. Everybody follow Sam. Links and all those details will be in the show notes.